Let's say your town decides to mandate that all ice cream is free or very cheap. Soon, lines are out the door for people wanting to get cheap ice cream. Sure, people can get similar desserts, but they'd have to pay full price. In order to take care of these long lines, the town decides to mandate that every store must provide free or very cheap ice cream. This might sound silly, but it's exactly what cities tend to do with parking. Cities price curb parking very cheaply and then deal with the excess demand by requiring businesses and residences to have off-street parking. What sorts of costs does this impose on society, and what are our options for change? You're listening to Upset Pattern. talk with me more today about parking is someone who has a decorated history of not paying for parking. Dun, dun, dun. Paige Atkinson. Paige, welcome to the program. Hi, yes. I park a lot and rarely pay for it, and I don't really know why I would. I also often do not pay for parking. My apartment building gives me a free parking space, and um, I park for free. I'm not ashamed of it, but uh, we'll see the cost that this imposes on, on others, hopefully by the end of the episode. To lay the background a little bit, land is a scarce resource. God isn't making more of it, as they say. A parking spot is around 330 square feet, plus, of course, the aisles and parking lots and garages. So 330 is a conservative estimate. Now, prices are often a signal wrapped in an incentive that usually coordinate resources and economy. A free parking spot in Manhattan is giving away the most valuable land on Earth. So we use prices to distribute resources that are scarce. Most cities charge too little for curbside parking, and this creates a shortage. But rather than raise prices, they'll mandate off-street parking for residences and businesses. That sounds like a lot of space that is not being paid for. Yeah, and of course people are getting good use out of it because cars are filling them up and you got to put your car somewhere. But the idea is that, just like in the ice cream analogy, even if people are eating the ice cream, it's not the best use of our resources. And we use prices in a market economy to coordinate how to use those resources. To give a sense of how arbitrary these laws are when they mandate the, the off-street parking, usually they'll mandate a certain amount of spaces based on square feet, number of dwellings, or a number of a given characteristic for that kind of establishment. Some examples throughout the country. A nunnery requires one space per 10 nuns. A gas station, one and a half spaces per fuel nozzle. Swimming pool, one space for 2,500 gallons of water. Tennis court, one space per tennis player. Beauty shop, three spaces per beautician. Or a church, based on how many seats they have. And of course, a lot of churches will use a folding chair loophole to get around having to have too much parking. Now, one study surveying 49 cities in the Bay Area, parking for a hospital ranged between 29 and 1,682 spaces unrelated to the city's population or density. And you can see through all of these arbitrary quantities, we're, we're picking not based on how in demand the parking is or how valuable that land is, you know, the range of between 29 and 1682, you can tell that even if they're getting it close sometimes, they could be getting it really wrong, and this could be a really misallocation of space. 
And a lot of times cities are actually just copying each other to get a sense of what they should put these numbers on. If you're looking at parking like the ice cream analogy, if parking is a good, it doesn't really seem like it's being priced in the, economically like any other good would be. Correct. And at this point, people are getting used to free parking, and it's very politically difficult to change that. And our cities are sort of being built on this assumption of free or cheap parking that creates sprawl. And so when a lot of people imagine, it, you know, if, this, if suddenly you have to pay a lot for parking, well, there's not a public transit system that can get me from point A to point B, and I still need to take my car, so it's just, you know, I've got to drive anyway. Why don't we just keep it the way it is? You mentioned creating sprawl. What is What exactly does that mean? Right. So by devoting more land, um, the off-street parking to, to parking spaces rather than um, residences or businesses, that means that everything gets a little bit more spread out. And if you think of the total cost of a car trip, you have gasoline, insurance, car wear and tear, um, and of course parking. But parking when it's free isn't included in this implicit in the explicit cost of a car trip. And that means that people are incentivized to drive more than they otherwise would if they had to pay for this parking spot. This creates cities to sprawl outward because distances are easier to, to manage when you don't have to pay for the actual cost of the car trip. Okay, so people would live closer to where they worked or where they went to school if they had to pay, if parking was another added cost to the transportation. Yeah, you can think of it as people have a variety of options of getting around to, to a destination. You can walk, bike, take the bus, drive. And if the cost of driving a car or a car trip goes up, people are going to shift their demand to different ways of mobility. But the biggest aspect of it, I think, is that because this space is being devoted to parking spaces, you know, 330 square feet per parking space, that, you know, you can get an apartment for not too much bigger than that in Manhattan. And yet this is just for a car to sit idly. And though there's no definitive uh, count of how many parking spaces there are in America, one estimate is that it's between three to four spots for every car. One for home, one for work, and a couple for on the go. That's a ton of space that usually isn't being filled. But, but to go back to the sprawl issue, if you have a plot of land, you open a restaurant, and the government says you need to devote, I don't know, let's say half of it to parking spaces, whatever the amount is, that's, that half of land now can't be another restaurant. So you can see that we lose density because we're devoting land to cars rather than restaurants, you know, other businesses and housing. Right. <clears throat> so people are almost forced to live farther away because the land is meant for parking spots. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a, a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy when there is sprawl and car trips are cheaper than they should be. People are going to want to drive more. And thus, it'll look like, oh, the parking spaces are serving their purpose because the cars are filling them. But what, what you don't realize is that the cost of these parking spaces is hidden and diffused. It's only free to the driver. So in that plot of land where half is being devoted to parking, that means that 
a restaurant is paying for the whole plot of land, but they can only use half for their business. This means that resident, residential and business space is, there's a lower supply of it, which will drive up rent costs, um, you know, the cost of operating business. And it makes everything a little bit less affordable. That seems pretty unfair, especially for people who don't even drive cars. Exactly. And that's that's a, a really good point when it comes to talking about the affordability of housing, because cities will put these arbitrary mandates on how much off-street parking you need, but it doesn't take into account really anything. Um, and one thing it doesn't take into account is how many people in a residence will have cars. So affordable housing projects, for example, in Chicago, there have been developers that have wanted to create affordable housing, but they were mandated to devote a certain amount of land uh, area to parking spaces. And they sort of said, well, you know, at this point, we're not going to be able to supply this housing to people for affordable prices. So they didn't do it. And in most of those low-income houses, those people don't have cars. And you can see then if we shift to a, a car-based economy or city, the people who are really getting screwed over the most are the low-income people because you know, if they, if they don't have cars but a lot of mobility is based on the need of having a car, they're the ones that luck out and have to take the, the much longer bus ride, for example. Is there an, like a numbered price for how much this is costing, especially the extra burden that is being put on those low-income people? So Mark DeLucci at the University of California, Davis, um, estimates that drivers pay between 1% to 4% of actual cost of off-street parking. So like we said, you know, it's hard to tell um, how many parking spaces there really are. But the cost of a parking space is not only the the land and what you could use for it otherwise, but also you have to repair it, maintain it, a parking attendant, whatnot. So on the low estimate, he estimates that this operating cost of off-street parking is $79 billion on the low end and $226 billion on the high end. And that was in 2002. Now, as a comparison, we spent $231 billion on Medicare that year and $349 billion on national defense. Those, you know, those are two of, I guess, two of our three biggest budgetary expenses in the federal budget. And this is a subsidy to drivers. Of course, it's it's not totally fair to think of this as a as a net loss because we're transferring this to drivers, right? We're not getting rid of the land altogether. Um, now, to make up for this, a gas tax would have to be between $1.27 and $3.74 a gallon to offset the subsidy for off-street parking. So think of that cost added onto your gas, and that will give you the you know what you might call the true cost of a car journey. And that would definitely incentivize incentivize people not to drive all the time. Yeah, and sometimes um, in our heads you think, you know, I I have to drive to work every day. There are no other options. But when gas when gasoline prices have spiked um, in the past, the demand for public transportation goes up. Maybe you ride your bike one day a week. People can shift, and it is fairly difficult with the way that a lot of cities are set up now to make this change because free parking has been the reality for decades and we've adapted our lifestyles accordingly. 
I guess there's always adapting to a new lifestyle like carpooling and broadened public transportation because if they did somehow implicate a tax or hike the price of parking, that money would have to go somewhere back into the city, I'm assuming. Yeah, and that's um, and this source of revenue is is a big part of the proposed solution um, that Donald Shoup at the University of California, Los Angeles posited. He sort of wrote this, what's considered the holy grail of, of parking. Um, and the solution that he has uh, to, to price parking the way that we should, what he calls the right price, um, you, know, you can use technology to price parking based on location and time of day where you have 15% of spots vacant at a given time. This allows for easy transition. Um, people aren't always looking for spots, stuff like that. Um, but of course, businesses need to be need to be convinced that this is a good idea. If you've had free parking outside your business for a long time and suddenly people have to pay, is this going to discourage them from going? Well, what Shoop has found is that cities that have tried the fair price parking have really benefited from it, and businesses love it. So Old Pasadena, which is a neighborhood in the L.A. area, used to be a really dilapidated neighborhood. No one was going there, you know, boarded up shops. Picture it, you know, all the stereotypes. And then they started to charge the fair price for parking. And suddenly it became a lot easier to walk through. You know, people like walking through a place where there aren't cars and congestion and all that. And the money that goes into the meters is invested in what's called a bid, a business investment district. And so now the sidewalks become nicer. Um, you know, you can invest in parks and trees in the area, and this makes going to those businesses better. And of course, the other, the other aspect of charging the right price for parking is that people don't need to cruise for a parking spot. They don't have to wait around, drive around the block, spend 15 minutes to find a parking spot. When you incentivize people not to drive as much and there isn't as much demand, then parking is a lot easier and going to that business is easier. And even in some examples, some cities or some neighborhoods in San Diego, one side of the street has practiced this fair price of parking and the other one hasn't. And, you know, looking at pictures in this book, it's incredible how night and day it is. Because on the one side, you have nice sidewalks, um, businesses are doing better. And then on the other side, Sure, people are parking there, but, you know, it's just not as pleasant to be. Yeah, I definitely think that it would be more pleasant not to have to budget time in transportation to cruise and look for a spot because there are spots and not as many drivers. And cruising is definitely a cost of this this shortage of parking. It congests traffic, it creates pollution, and it wastes energy and time. As George Costanza said, it's like going to a prostitute. Why should I pay when if I apply myself, maybe I could get it for free? <laughs> and people have that mentality with, with free parking where if I drive around long enough, I'll, I'll be able to find one. But around 30% of cars in one study in congested traffic are, are cruising. And that number can be as high as 45% in Brooklyn. And it, back to the ice cream analogy, if you have ice cream lines out the door and you know that you can get it for free somewhere, you might be running around the block just trying to find a place where there's a short line. But that's not a good use of your time. We, we have, you know, only 24 hours in a day. And 
This is a reflection of the shortage of parking when you have it priced too cheaply. Now, having that right price when you have 15% vacancies, this will cut down on cruising immensely. Now, think of that 30% of traffic being cruising. Those are people that are already at their destination, essentially, but just continue to go in stop-and-go traffic looking for a parking spot. And those are, <clears throat> those are huge externalities with pollution and obviously affecting all the other drivers on the road. The image of a huge strip mall with hundreds of parking spaces is coming to mind, not necessarily Manhattan. Would places like this charge for every single spot, or would those places fill up with more businesses? It's hard to tell because with the status quo, these, you know, the Walmarts and the Costcos that have hundreds of spaces um, empty on, let's say, you know, at 1 a.m. on a Tuesday, they've been mandated to put those spots there. So if they're freed up to use their space however they want, they could they could charge, sorry, they could use that land for a lot of spaces or for a little, and they'll find the best use of that space. So it's an interesting change, giving the responsibility to whatever the business is to make up not necessarily these arbitrary mandates correct and that brings up a good point which is if all these businesses decide to take off of take off their off-street parking does that mean that it will spill into residential zones this is a big concern and it makes sense because if you're used to parking for free in front of your house or you just like a quiet neighborhood and suddenly all these cars want to avoid the prices and come to park in front of your house that's a big concern But how this is addressed is not charging residents in the neighborhood, but charging people who are non-residents. And we we kind of do this to an extent already by having a residential permit parking only, but usually this overcompensates for the problem and there's too much free space. Now, usually when you buy a house or let's say you're living in an apartment building and when you decided to move in, there was this free parking space. But, no, but now, um, you know, it's no longer there. It's important that we, we do compensate the owners or tenants of these places by allowing them to park for free, you know, the residential permits. Or if they don't want to, they can get the revenue from the non-residents parking there. Now, the apartment building I live in right now, we are giving a parking spot. Oh, it sounds great, free, right? But it also means that because my apartment complex can have fewer residences, you know, my rent's going to go up. So it's a bundled cost, which is something something to keep in mind. In the same way that free parking in a restaurant is a bundled cost because they have less land to spend on, uh, you know, having more tables or whatnot, space to sell their goods, um, the cost of everything else go up. So you, as a resident, hypothetically, if you didn't have a car, could you rent out that parking space, that valuable piece of land? Yeah, and that's what um, certain neighbors have tried to do, um, especially, for example, Boulder, Aspen, Santa Cruz have tried um, with mostly successful um, charging non-residents for permits. And so you basically decide what you want to do with that that space in front of your house. You can either take it yourself uh, or give it to your guests, or if you don't have a car or let's say you have a driveway, 
you can get revenue for it. And sometimes this revenue can be ex- just amazingly high. Um, just a tidbit to throw in there with, with how expensive these these parking spots are. The average parking available for, per car, remember we said there's like three to four spots and with these land usage and capital improvements, the average parking available per car is $12,000, which is twice as much as the average cost of a car, which is five and a half thousand, according to 2005 numbers. Um, so you can see that some people might get really substantial amount of money by renting out um, the the space in front of their house. It's valuable property. Absolutely. I mean, think of in Manhattan if you have cheaply priced parking. Um, it's it's giving away some of the most valuable land on earth for free. $12,000 sounds like my rent. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, because we've gotten so used to these these cheap parking prices and you can't really tell you know, in, in, in A, B world of what would it be like without, um, of course, we have these experiments like in San Diego and old Pasadena, California. But to give a sense of how going from no requirements to having requirements, how much that costs. Oakland had no parking requirements until 1961. And then afterward, they mandated very similar requirements um, with the off-street parking and the cheap curbside parking. Now, afterwards, the result was that housing density went down 30%, which means more sprawl, and construction costs went up 18%. Now, remember that adding an apartment requires more parking because usually it's based on tenants or residencies, but enlarging it doesn't. So this gets back to the affordable housing where on the margins, developers can be incentivized to create bigger apartments rather than a higher quantity, and that means only the people that can afford big apartments are the ones moving in. That sounds pretty unpleasant for the new tenants. Absolutely. And the, the thing about this, obviously, is that it's so hidden. We, you know, you drive down the street and to you, the driver, you only see the free price of parking. You don't think of how it's affecting every other cost. And just walking down in, in Austin, in really any other city, just look at the the skyline. You see how much space is just parking garages. Um, and this is land that we could be using for so many better things. Businesses. Businesses, more housing. Um, you know, you can maybe walk places, which isn't too possible in, in most Texan cities. Yeah, especially because the more people drive, the more just overall congestion it is. Even for walkers, it's hard. And that's a, a good point um, that a few writers have brought up is that all of this um, opposition to development and people coming into a city like Austin, you don't really, you're not as overwhelmed by it when people don't bring cars because cars take up so much space and add to the traffic. And if people are just coming in with, without a car, um, it's not nearly as much of a headache. If it was just people walking around, you wouldn't have as much to complain about. Absolutely. Um, But I think one overall point to emphasize is that this isn't choosing between a, you know, do we like cars or don't we like cars? Or, you know, we're just trying to support public transportation. Because there are some good things about sprawl or driving. Personally, I like dense cities. I like being able to walk places. But, you know, it can feel suffocating sometimes when you have 
this sprawl. Um, there's a little bit more open space, and that's pleasant. Um, cars are fun to drive in. You can listen to music. It gives you autonomy. You can carry things around. You don't have to work on the schedule of a, of a bus or train. Um, you know, you're insulated from the weather more so than walking or biking. So it's not to say that there's that, that driving in itself is entirely bad. What it's saying is that the price of a car trip should accurately reflect its true cost. So if we include the price of parking in the cost of a car trip, people's incentives will then sort of allocate our resources in an urban planning way that are more ideal. It definitely makes sense to me because I do love to drive, but price of gas definitely has a factor in how much I do it. So if price of parking, if I was more aware of it, I probably would choose alternate modes of transportation. Yeah, and then as more people are choosing those different modes of transportation or cities are becoming denser, you know, the the transition process might be slow. You're not going to suddenly see Austin be the you know, have a metro. Yeah, exactly. Or, um, you know, it's going to be as walkable as, as downtown Manhattan or, you know, European old city without cars. But slowly development will sort of take into account people's preferences. And if driving from, you know, 25 minutes outside of Austin is now more expensive, people aren't going to want to live out there as more. And so they're going to want to be denser. And of course, there will be more housing possibilities uh, because we're not devoting as much land to parking. And I do have to, I do have to say, I think this is interesting. You know, there's some cities. Obviously, it varies a lot um, with how much a city will devote to parking. San Francisco, for example, um, and New York and Seattle, they have limits on how much parking you can have. Um, whereas cities like LA, Dallas, and Miami, they have minimums. So you can sort of see how that affect the density. Um, but Albuquerque, New Mexico actually has more land devoted to its parking than all other land uses combined. Think about that. How, how much surf, how much area and space is being wasted or not wasted, just used for parking and how, you know, the more parking lots there are, the more spread out things are and you have to drive more and it, it just feeds on itself. And it, it, I've never been there. It sounds terrible. Just from that. I, I'm sure there's a, there's a lively art scene and the people are wonderful, but whew. I just can't. I could only imagine how much greater it would be if they could devote that space to restaurants, businesses, even homes. Yeah, you have, you have less car combustion or pollution, whatever it's called. Um, people can walk places. And looking at parking lots isn't the prettiest thing. Not very aesthetically pleasing. Definitely. So we have this this overall problem of misallocating par- the land used for parking. And if we establish these, these right prices using technology that can sort of gauge what the demand will be to get about 15%, I think we can, you know, cities can adapt and develop to be more efficient with the, the way they use land. Yeah, sounds like that to me. After hearing all this, do you do you feel guilty about all your free parking? I feel not guilty. You don't have to. Yeah. Uninformed, right. misinformed. But on the other hand, you know, even if you aren't paying, and of course, you know, I drive too, so 
I'm not going to just say that you're guilty. Uh, even if we're not paying for the, the true cost of a car trip, there's we have every incentive to make use out of this free parking. If the city is more spread out and the parking spot comes with my apartment building, I'm going to use it. I definitely feel less likely to complain the next time I do have to pay for parking. Right. And also, the next time that you can find a spot, rather than cruise, think about all the congestion you're creating and the... Exhaustion. Exhaust, yeah. And the the time you're wasting. If you spend 15 minutes, that's a, a real cost. Yeah. And time is money. Time is money. Upset Patterns is hosted by Will Comperl and produced by Paige jensen Slattengren and Tequila Mockingbird Studios in Austin, Texas. My guest today has been Paige Atkinson. Want more sources related to today's podcast? Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash upsetpatterns. Your family and friends will never die.